Hello, and thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink. Happy holidays to you and your family. I appreciate your support throughout 2019, and now we get ready for a whole new decade. It's a joyful time, but it can also be a stressful time. This year, we have two major holidays within the span of one month. That's a lot. Thanksgiving landed on November 28th, which is as far in the calendar as the fourth Thursday can fall. Also can be challenging for people if you're struggling to pay for celebrations or travel, or if you feel lonely or may have lost a loved one. So thoughts and prayers for everyone and for peace and for harmony throughout the world. And may this little episode bring a little more light into everyone's life, however you may be listening. 62% of Americans report that they could use more forgiveness in their life. And new research is helping our understanding of the link between forgiveness and physical health. A study published in the Journal of Psychology and Health in 2009 found that Random cardiac patients with coronary heart disease who underwent forgiveness training were able to improve blood flow to the heart. They were also at less risk of pain and sudden death when compared to a control group, which received the standard medical treatment. Emotions can be major obstacles to forgiveness. fMRI experiments reveal activation in the emotion centers of the limbic system in the brain when one even considers forgiving someone. This likely indicates feelings of anger and hurt and negative emotions can disrupt rational thinking in the prefrontal cortex. Thus, it can complicate the whole process. However, when subjects are guided through fictional scenarios in which they were wronged and then forgave, the anterior cingulate cortex lights up and functions as a bridge between the perception and suppression of moral pain. So, just as we have biochemical mechanisms for reducing physical pain, forgiveness may be a pain reliever for moral distress. But, as I point out in the beginning of this episode, forgiveness seems to be one of the more misunderstood words in the language of spirituality and healing. And so I hope to shed some light, at the very least, on what it is and what it is not. And I hope that you can take the information in this episode and carry the conversation forward. Please share with friends and family or anyone who may be in need of healing. This topic about forgiveness is also relevant because... We live in a pretty divided world right now. It can be difficult to let go of anger. I saw a study that followed people after divorce, and 10 years later, many people still have very intense anger. There is a theme throughout this episode that forgiveness is a process. And since it is Christmas Eve, this is the time when Christians are celebrating the birth of Jesus. There is a connection there because there are some passages where Jesus is teaching forgiveness, such as the 
instruction to forgive seven times seventy. Not really sure what the symbolism of those numbers mean, but another way to interpret it is that healing through forgiveness does not happen overnight. It's often an ongoing practice, and that's something that's highlighted throughout this episode. He also taught to love your enemies, which reminds me of something Abe Lincoln once said before the Civil War, when he was calling the opposing side his friends in the South, and when he was criticized, he said, Do I not defeat my enemies when I make them my friends? I also have a little pocketbook called Recipes for Wholeness that I wrote a few years ago, and it contains 18 prescriptions for mindfulness in the form of a recipe. And the 17th one is called Forgiveness Tea, so I thought I would read that to you today. The ingredients are 4 ounces of compassion, 4 ounces of acceptance, 1 tablespoon of courage, 1 tablespoon of commitment, and then one tablespoon of forgiveness and the directions. This makes one serving, so this is only for you. Boil compassion and acceptance in a heart-shaped kettle of personal power, which cannot be defined by the past. Gradually, resentment will evaporate and reduce the heaviness. Remember, this does not happen instantly, but is a process. Wrap the courage and commitment in the present moment and steep continuously. Finally, you can sweeten everything with forgiveness. When there is enough letting go within yourself, you are free to enjoy. And there's a quote at the bottom of every one of these recipes, and this one says, When the violin can forgive the past, it starts singing. From Hafiz. Multiple times throughout this episode, I mention that forgiveness is a mind-body healing. So even when we intellectually agree to forgive, our bodies might still react. So part of this process is creating communication between the mind and body. So I think a very helpful follow-up to listening to this episode would be to use the guided meditation on my website called Pyramid Meditation. It helps people recognize where in the body we may be storing pain, hurt, or even trauma, and where it could be felt, and how to breathe through that to activate the relaxation response and promote healing and recoding in the mind. You can find that at michaeltodfink.com slash studio. Finally, there will be many Exciting things to share with you in the new year. Details about different retreats that I'll be a part of, including two in February, one in Illinois, one in Wisconsin. And I'm also organizing a desert retreat in April. So those of you who may be interested in going deeper into contemplation and meditation in a quiet, serene space, Please keep an eye out for that on my website, but you're also welcome to send a message if you know you're interested, as there will be a very limited number of spaces, and I will respond to inquiries as they come in, but I will be sending out more information to those on the mailing list, so if you're not on the email list, you can join on the website, 
But my email is toddfink at hotmail.com. You're welcome to reach out that way as well. Or uh, stay in touch on social media at Michael Todd Fink on Instagram or Facebook. There's a short parable of forgiveness about a hermitess who wrote a holy book. But her dog knocked over a lamp and the entire manuscript burned. The saintly woman forgave her dog and simply said, You don't know the damage caused by you. She then rewrote the entire book. This reminds me of they don't understand what they're doing. But as we'll learn in this episode, we can understand that forgiveness is for the forgiver and that the other person does not even need to know that they are being forgiven. It's a process of releasing so that we can give ourselves the gift of moving forward. Forgive. Thank you, my friends. Enjoy this episode. It's a path. Forgiveness is not clear-cut, one-time decision. Working in the hospital over the years, I often hear patients say, when we're processing something in therapy, gosh, I thought I forgave that person, but here I am getting upset about it. So there may be a time in our life where we say, I forgive you, in our mind or to that person, but our bodies don't accept it bodies still react at the thought or the sight of that person. I think forgiveness is a good topic because we got to see a lot of people during the holidays. (laughs) And they may not be all the people you want to see. (laughs) And some of these people may have hurt us. Some people may have betrayed us at one time or another, wronged us in some way, whether big way or small way. And it can be hard to be in the same room with them. So we're going to explore this topic tonight, and I'd like to begin, before defining forgiveness, I'd like to talk about what it's not. I think people struggle with this as a spiritual practice or as a therapeutic intervention, as a healing modality. I think people struggle because they have the wrong idea about what it is. It's not weakness. It can't be a sign of weakness because the science shows that it leads to emotional strength. And there's now new research about how it's good for our heart. I had mentioned that there was a unique study with cardiac patients. After some kind of procedure for their heart, there was an experiment that divided patients into two groups, those that just got standard medical treatment for their recovery. And then a second experimental group was also given forgiveness therapy. And they found that months later, years later, that group had significantly less risk of sudden death. There's something that is good for our heart. And 
heart disease is the number one cause of death in America. So anything we can do to take care of our heart, to protect our heart, matters. It takes courage also. It takes courage to be able to face ourselves, to face the feelings that we might have deep inside, and ultimately leads to reclaiming one's personal power. So if that is the end result, then it certainly can't be a sign of weakness. It's not condoning. To forgive, sometimes confused with giving absolution to someone's behavior. A person can forgive and still say to themselves that what happened was not okay. What happened was wrong. So it's not giving absolution to or, or finding a way to excuse what happened, thereby making it likely to happen again. So that's, that's also not what forgiveness is. Like I said before, it's not a one-time decision. It's a process. So what is it? Well, there are two definitions that I think are useful tonight. One is from psychiatric textbooks. It's releasing attachment to negative emotions associated with a hurt or wrong in the past. Another definition that just comes from the dictionary which I think is also important. It's to give up the desire to punish. Now, of course, I think people are concerned about forgiveness and justice. Well, I think people have different ideas about justice. I don't think justice has to mean that the person who committed a crime has to be hurt but it probably means that the society has to be safer. So there's two things. There has to be some form of, some process to keep the society safe by maybe removing that person for some time or giving some penalty. And then the second part is that it becomes a deterrent for people in the future. But I think we can pursue justice without all the bitterness inside, or we can do it while releasing the bitterness. So I think that there are several steps to this practice. These might be the order that they take place, but I think it could be some or all of these steps. But the first one is a resolve, a resolve to begin this process. If you think of like a physical injury, to decide to go to physical therapy doesn't mean you're done. It's just the beginning. If you really want to forgive something that hurts you, you have to make a decision at some point to begin the process, to invest in it. So the first step is resolve. The second one is understanding. Understanding in this step means to get the facts. What actually happened? Especially if it's something that happened long ago that you would have had a totally different perspective on as a child than as an adult. And as you revisit to get proper understanding or more perspective, maybe clinical perspective if necessary, you get a holistic picture of what was wrong. Sometimes we find when we do this step that we blame ourselves, or we hold some misunderstanding about why things happened or we blame somebody who really had no fault in it. And so it's about unpacking the story a little bit, putting the pieces back together in a holistic manner. 
Then thirdly is empathy. When you try to understand the story, then you want to put yourself in other people's shoes, even the person that wronged you. And to do that means to think about the other areas and circumstances that contribute to a wrong happening. Nothing happens totally in isolation. And I see this all the time in the hospital. People who struggle with with bad habits, with addictions, and so on, it's, that's never the beginning. There's always more to the story. People who harm people, there's always something else going on in the background. Abuse, poor parenting, and so on. But you will probably find that there's something to be empathetic about. It doesn't, con again, it doesn't condone the behavior, but it can start to open the doors to compassion. Compassion for yourself, compassion for the conditions in the society that make it possible for people to slip through the cracks, for there to be poverty, for there to be epigenetics of trauma. Then the next step is a commitment to the process of healing. Because I said it's not a one-time clear-cut decision, it's an ongoing process. And because it's a process, the next step is patience. The word for forgiveness in Sanskrit, those who study yoga or practice yoga, this may be meaningful to you, it's kshama, K-S-H-A-M-A. But in Sanskrit, this doesn't directly translate to forgiveness. It connects more to the word patience because of the process. If you've ever been in physical therapy, you know that you gotta be patient. If you've ever been off your feet, I broke my foot once and I had to be off my feet for a little while. But understanding patience is important. Patience isn't just waiting. Patience is waiting without frustration. So I challenge you to practice patience in situations where the stakes are low. Waiting at a light, you're waiting for the doctor to come see you. you know. If you can be peaceful during that time, if you can train your mind to be calm, then this will come more naturally to you. Patience is only a thing until there's no more frustration. Then it isn't even patience anymore. Patience is a practice. There's this movie called, I think it's called Never Cry Wolf about, remember that? The guy up in, yeah, Canada. Yeah, he was researching why the caribou population was declining. They thought it was because of wolves. He was following these wolves and studying them, but they ended up finding out that it wasn't because of the wolves, it was because of the environment and the climate. But he met an Inuit man and he was helping them get acclimated to the harsh conditions up there. And as they were trekking through the snow, he would get way ahead of him and just sit and wait. He was never waiting uncomfortably. It wasn't because he was practicing patience. It was because in his culture, things take as long as they take. So there was no idea that it should be faster or slower. That's more of a modern concept. This should have happened by now. We should have started at seven o'clock exactly. There should have been enough chairs, you know, and so on. We're not always accustomed to just 
waiting. And it gets harder and harder too, I think, when we have all this technology and our lives are so booked up now. When I was a kid, it just seemed like there was a lot of time because we just did whatever we wanted. You know, there was no exact time we'd be done playing basketball or hiking in the woods. And then the next one is release. This forgiveness in Sanskrit, kshama, is one of 10 moral precepts in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. This is one of the foremost texts on how to do the asanas, the postures. But you're supposed to get some mastery over these moral precepts before you practice the postures. And one of them is forgiveness. But it is interpreted more as patience or releasing time. That's one of the other loose translations of Kshama, releasing time. Because time is what has a hold on us. And also when we've been wronged, we tend to get anchored to something that happened in the past. I think the meditation teacher Jack Cornfield said that forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. <laughs> and really that's what it is, because when you don't forgive, you keep replaying the event again and again. You keep going back to it as if it could be different. There's a filmmaker, Alejandro Jodorowsky, from Chile, who's a very avant-garde, eccentric, creative. But he had a little talk about Zen, and he said, the two most useless things are hope and fear. If right now we have nothing that we're hoping would be different, and we're not afraid of anything, then we're all good. If you hope for something, that means you have to be agitated. There has to be a tension or an anxiety inside now. And if we're afraid, then we can't love. As you're committing to this process, the storm will come back up. But you want to do the mind-body techniques of meditation and mindfulness to ground yourself in the present moment and to use your breathing to release those feelings, to let them rise but not stuff them back down. Let them come up and let them go. So let's try an experiment with this together. I'd like you to set your things down for a moment. And go ahead and sit straight but comfortably in your chair. Close your eyes if you feel comfortable. Before we do this technique, let's Try to release a little of the tension that might be stored in our body. Try to relax the little facial muscles around your eyes. And let your shoulders relax. They tend to come up towards our ears when we're nervous or stressed. As you exhale, release any tightness that might be in your stomach. Relax your jaw. If your tongue's pressed against the roof of your mouth, release it, maybe place it behind your upper teeth. 
and take a few deep breaths into your nose, out through your mouth. Then I'd like you to silently repeat after me in your mind. If I have hurt anyone, knowingly or unknowingly, I ask for forgiveness. And just take a moment to see what images or people arise in your consciousness. If I have hurt anyone, knowingly or unknowingly. Whatever you notice or whoever you see in your mind, you can ask for forgiveness. I'd like you to think to yourself, may you release any hurt that I might have caused you because forgiveness is the release of attachment to the negative feelings. And take a couple breaths deeply. Next, silently repeat after me. If anyone has hurt me knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive them. And now see what comes up. If tension comes up, that's okay. Remember, part of this process, one of the steps is commitment. It's not a one-time decision. If you see somebody who hurt you or you feel some tension, just allow that to rise. Notice it without judgment and then breathe through it. And as you contemplate forgiveness, remember that it means releasing, releasing the negative feeling. And then finally, silently say to yourself, If I have hurt myself, knowingly or unknowingly, by not living up to my highest light, I forgive myself. And see what comes up. See what regret or guilt may be stored within and let it rise, then breathe through it. feel ready, you can slowly open your eyes and come back to the room. This is a small practice in loving kindness. 
Loving-kindness meditation guides the mind towards compassion for ourselves and others. So there's three aspects to this. Noticing first how you might have wronged somebody else. And I think it's interesting to start with that because if you are able to remember a time when you hurt somebody and you wish it could have been different or you wish you could take it back, you already know how much you desire to be forgiven. And so that can set the stage for releasing the hurts that we hold on to. Acceptance. This is the sixth step. Acceptance means that you've let go of identifying with the past, but you've integrated the lesson. You've integrated the wisdom of your experience. So there's a saying that immature people neither forgive nor forget. Naive people forgive and forget. And the wise forgive but don't forget. So again, forgiveness is not forgetting. Because you can't forget or remember. It happens as it happens. If you try to forget, you won't forgive. You'll end up repressing the experience. And then it will be this hidden wound inside of us that's affecting our life, but we don't understand it because we've pushed it down so much. And then the last one is compassion. So out of this, we want to grow more in love. They say that to err is human, to forgive divine. So if there is some spiritual foundation or base of everything, some type of ultimate reality that's made up of love, then this is an opportunity to get closer to God, whatever your concept of a higher power is. Because in that totality, there is no others. There's only the oneness. If I could get more adept at the, this training, the forgiveness would already be there. For somebody like a Buddha, the forgiveness happens before the insult. There's a story that he was teaching once and somebody had all this resentment pent up against the Buddha, probably because he was teaching women. And so that was controversial at the time. And this one man came to one of his talks and he was going to let him have it. But his anger was so strong that he couldn't talk. And you know how it feels when you're so upset you can't get the words out. So instead he just spit on him. And the Buddha just takes his robe and wipes his face and continues talking. And then the man left and thought about what happened and he's saying to himself, geez, I spit on his face and he didn't even react. He just wiped his face and continued talking. <clears throat> so he spontaneously felt remorse. He said, that's not how an ordinary man behaves. So he decided to go back and ask for forgiveness. But when he went to find him again, he was gone. And so he asked where the Buddha went and followed him to another village. When he caught up with him, he came to him and he said, I regret what I did yesterday and I ask your forgiveness. And the Buddha said, for what? What did, what did you do? And he said, you know, yesterday I 
the one who spat on your face. He's like, oh, it's nothing. That's yesterday. It's different tree, different people, different village. And you and I are different. The Buddha already has it in him to forgive. He's already done the practice so he doesn't have to do it wrong by wrong. I also think when he said, you're different and I'm different, this I think helps with self-forgiveness. Some people tell me that that's the hardest, forgiving oneself. It's possible when we realize that we are different people today. The younger version of myself If you go past seven years, it's completely different atomic structure with a different mind, different everything. So I can forgive that person if I'm better at forgiving others but not myself. I can look at a past version of myself and feel compassion for that person as if it wasn't me. And I bet if you brought younger versions of myself in my own company today, we would be quite different. We probably would disagree on many things. How do people get wounded? We talked about the steps. Let me narrate three types of psychological wounds, which are known as archetypal wounds, which means they don't belong to just some time and place or culture. It's throughout history that people get wounded in this way. And I'm going to reference the work of Dr. Mario Martinez, if you find this interesting. He has a book called The Mind-Body Code. The first one is abandonment. So abandonment can happen when somebody important in a person's life walks out. It can happen in childhood when a parent isn't present. It can happen after divorce. It can happen even if the parent is present but is neglectful. It can happen in a romantic relationship. And so he says that because we feel this sense of deep neglect, and it creates a wound in us, and it makes us feel maybe unworthy of the attention of that person that we care deeply about. The real danger is that we go on harming ourselves by not remaining committed to the things that matter. Poor performance academically for children of divorce, historically. There's a higher rate of smoking and drug use after some kind of abandonment. I think because the interpretation, if it happens in childhood, is that, well, if my role models are not committed to the good thing of the family, why should I be committed to my health or to my studies? But that ends up hurting the person in the long run, the person who was abandoned. And that's something that has to be owned later on. That Yes, this neglect or this abandonment was a wound, but now I'm continuing to wound myself by not committing to the things that are valuable. So the antidote for this forgiveness and for healing from this kind of wound is commitment. The second one is betrayal. Betrayal means some kind of violation of the code of ethics between people. And the betrayal is a deeper wound if it's somebody that we care about or are very close to, somebody we trust. When the trust is broken, then we get this wound. That betrayal could be violence, it could be abuse, it could be emotional abuse, it could be cheating, stealing, lying. But it breaks down the the moral fabric of social connection. And so the antidote, according to Dr. Martinez, 
is loyalty. Because if we're not going to be loyal to the people we do care about or do trust, you won't have deep connection. There can be a tendency to build walls after being hurt. Because if I have a, a wall and I don't let anyone get close to me, then nobody can hurt me. No one can violate my trust if I don't ever let them get close enough to do so. But that is the continued harm for the person. By keeping a wall, you start to die of loneliness and isolation. The other thing people do, though, sometimes is remove all boundaries. Let people be as intimate as, as they want. Then nothing is ever taken. You know, it's like if I have a little note in my car, take what you need, and they do so without breaking anything, that could feel better than having my window smashed and you know the stereo ripped out. And so that's the idea, that if it's always available to take whatever people want from me, it's sad, but it, it happens. And sometimes people fluctuate between the two, like in a bipolar way, sometimes rigid walls and sometimes no boundaries at all. But what needs to happen is healthy boundaries all of the time, and the people who violate our trust, they get moved to a different circle. I don't push everybody out. All right, and then the last one is shame. Now, how do we get wounded by shame? It's usually when our brain is developing and we don't have a strong sense of who we are yet. And if someone important is telling us, you're stupid, you're ugly, you're not good enough, or our peers, if they don't accept us because of the way we look, or because of the way we talk, or the way we dress, then a person can feel as if they are fundamentally flawed. And they can carry that wound all the way into adulthood. And so all these wounds can play out in adulthood as people-pleasing, as fear of abandonment, as clinging, as attachment, overextending ourselves, unable to say no to people. And the antidote for shame is honor. Now, I said these, well, because when somebody thinks that they're no good, you want to break that down by doing honorable things, by living a noble life, doing good things, living a life of high character, starts to show your mind that what you believe about yourself is not true. And I said these are archetypal wounds because they exist in all times and cultures. So something like shame, I've read that there was a indigenous population in civilization in Africa that had a rite of passage for men that involved defending a herd of sheep from a lion or some kind of leopard. If the 15-year-old boy is able to successfully protect all the sheep and defend against the lion, he becomes a man. If he fails, he never becomes a man. Obviously, if he fails at that one task, he's going to be ashamed. And there's nothing he can do about it. I've seen examples of this even in our culture. I think of a, a story from my football days in high school. I went to a very small private Catholic school. And our school was so small that one year we didn't have enough players to field the football team. So we had to forfeit the season for the first time in the school's history. And it made the community very upset because we had two state championships in football in the previous 10 years. So it was a football school. Everybody came on Friday night, and now they wouldn't have that. 
the boys that didn't want to play because had they played, we wouldn't be able we would have been able to field a team. But those boys didn't want to play. They they weren't athletic or they weren't interested in football. But I could hear people saying, you know, if these guys weren't such whatever. And it's kind of like the story of the rite of passage for the boy in the indigenous civilization thousands of years ago. These guys aren't men. Real men would put the helmet on and get out there. And I had mixed feelings at the time because I loved football and I wanted to play, and, but I also saw these guys getting shamed and it was a confusing time for me. But anyways, honor is the antidote to this. Last thing I want to share with you is some of the obstacles to forgiveness for others, forgiveness for ourselves. People think or say sometimes that this person doesn't deserve forgiveness. It's an obstacle, but ultimately forgiveness is not for anyone else. It's for you. It's about releasing the pain inside of you and letting go of being defined by the past. And if somebody was truly deserving, that would mean that they're coming to apologize, they totally understand what they did wrong, they want to make it up to you. Now, in those cases, that's hardly even forgiveness. If a person needed to be sorry for you to forgive them, then that means they have power over you because you can't control when they will be sorry. And if the person's dead, well, then they could never be forgiven because they can never come apologize. So the most undeserving of forgiveness is who you really want to practice releasing with. Second one is trust. Well, forgiveness is not reconciliation. Some people struggle with forgiveness because they think, I can never be cool with this person again. Remember, you can forgive and decide that you do not want to continue a relationship with that person of any kind because you don't trust them. Are there any other obstacles? Yes, when you're attempting this, you will have overwhelming emotions. And I think that is a a real obstacle. People don't want to feel that. People don't want to feel the agitation, the anxiety, and in some cases, dread and paranoia. So I think it's wise to do this kind of releasing in a safe environment, in some cases with a professional or with a clinician, or to be in a program or a retreat where you have the time to do the self-care when those strong emotions come up. This is also exactly why we need forgiveness, because it means all of that is still in there. And those are the things that affect the heart, the anger. For people who admit that they refuse to forgive, consciously know, I will not forgive. They have higher levels of cortisol. They have higher rates of heart disease and so on. So we need to do this if we want to heal and be able to take care of our heart. But yes, that's, that's a definite obstacle. Any others? Yeah, Sally. You may feel it come up, but you might not actually feel anything release. You just feel like more stress. The key to this is breathing. By breathing deeply, you activate the relaxation response in the body. So what we're trying to do with the releasing is actually triggering ourselves 
with the thoughts of the wrong and meditating while in apparent danger, because that tension that's rising is your brain thinking that there's now a risk of getting hurt in the present moment, but there's not. If I'm only thinking about what happened, I'm not actually in present danger. That's why it's important to meditate in that time, because you show the brain this moment is safe. When you do that again and again, the brain starts to recalibrate. Those same sensations and images no longer get the same reactions over time. And that's why I say it's a commitment. It's a process. As you keep working through this, you'll find that it is releasing and the same things don't trigger me in exactly the same way until you get to acceptance. I can be aware of the images, of the memory, and it doesn't make all the same stuff arise. I can understand what's wrong about it and I can work for justice in the community or in society, but I'm not overwhelmed by it and I have reclaimed my personal power. But the last obstacle that I would add to it is toxic shame. If we feel like we're fundamentally broken or bad because of the mistakes we made, then we have to let go of that. We have to overcome that. But it's probably a lifelong process for some, but it's not an all or nothing thing. It's not like when you finally reach acceptance, only then do you get the benefit. So I think that there's always deeper and deeper dimensions of the positive side of love and compassion. I don't even think that letting one wrong go is it. I mean, I think we want to just keep going until we're in like a Buddha-like state where things are forgiven before they arise. So I just think it's a continuous process. Sometimes people fear who they'll be after the forgiveness. Many people think that somehow they'll be less safe, that somehow their resentment protects them. Also, wellness sometimes can be intimidating for people. If you're somebody that struggles with depression or PTSD for a long time, you get very familiar with how to live that way, even though it's miserable. But we already know that we gravitate towards what's familiar not just what's healthiest. So a lot of times patients in recovery get really scared when they start to do well because it's a whole new paradigm. Like, well, what's expected of me now as a happy person? People identify with what happened to them. And so there's a line where when you exist below this line, it's like there's self-sabotage, there's self-harm, there's avoidance, there's isolation. Now, the person that wronged us doesn't make us isolate necessarily, but that's our reaction to it. And we want to rise above this line into self-empowerment. What happened to me cannot define me. The past cannot write my future. I get to write my story moving forward. The author of Fight Club, I can't remember his name, said something like, we need to realize that the past is just a story that you can just rip up and crumble and throw into the trash can. I tend to think of the past, my past, as a dream, the whole past, because it's stored in the same place as my dreams. And so it ultimately is just the story I tell myself now about why I am the way I am. And if that dream or that story isn't useful, I reinterpret it or I just let it go. You may say, well, Unlike a dream, you know, the 
past really affects you in the present moment. Well, so does a dream. If I have a nightmare last night, I mean, I wake up and I'm really affected by it. It's still a dream. It's still just something that's just stored now in our brain. And so we were talking about this involving releasing resentment. The opposite of forgiveness, this is important, is resentment. And resentment, if you look up that definition, is to hold on. To hold on to bitterness, to hold on to the desire to punish. So what's the opposite of holding on? Letting go. So in the end, there isn't really something to do to achieve forgiveness or to be in that balanced state again. There's really something to not do. And so all these practices are for the sake of letting go. Letting go of that heavy load that we carry that burdens us. And that's the ultimate goal, is to release. It's not about actually adding something, it's about subtracting something. Letting go of resentment. There was once a monk who would take this one path to his hermitage. And every day there was a lady who might have been mentally ill, but she would throw trash at him as he walked by. He would say things like, wasting your life, not working for society, and throwing garbage at him. But he never reacted. He just ignored it and kept going. This lady, because she was mean and cruel to everybody, had no one staying with her. Her family had left her. No one could really tolerate being around her. And after some years of this happening every day to the monk, he noticed one day she didn't throw any trash at him. And then the next day she didn't throw trash at him. And then on the third day, he was a little curious. I wonder if she's okay. So he went to the door, knocked on the door. Inside, the lady is sick. So the monk starts to take care of her and nurses her back to health. And after some time, she recovers and then has a transformation. She thinks, all this time I was saying you're not good for anything, (laughs) throwing trash at you and saying you're wasting your life being a monk. And then she decided to bake him a cake. (laughs) The moral of the story is you can transform garbage into cake. You can turn your heart from a landfill to a garden. So our heart can either be a place where we bury all our wounds and it festers up as we stuff it all down, or through this training that we're talking about, we can compost the waste. And if we compost it, then our heart can grow whatever we want. It can grow flowers. It can become a garden.